Welcome to Puzzling Company, your home for at-home puzzles and mysteries. Here are your hosts, Jared and Zach. What's up, everybody? Jared here from Puzzling Company, coming to you live from the Deadbolt Mystery Society studio. And with me, as always, except not as always, is my partner in crime, who is not here today. Zach is not well, he is ill, he is recovering, but it is the type of ill where we can't get him in on a Zoom call and just make this all nice in post. So I'm kind of sad today. I don't really like doing this by myself. Feels a little bit awkward, but we're going to power through to put out a great episode regardless. And then we're going to get Zach back, but he is resting, as I said, especially because we're, as of tomorrow, supposed to leave for Boston for recon. And I want him as fit as he can be because we're going to be bouncing all around Boston, having a good time. But today on our show, we are covering a couple games from our friends over at Trap Puzzles Room up in Minnesota. We're covering their Kickstarter that just finished, which is a game called Rough Bluff. That's actually based on their online point and click adventure called Furlock Homes. So we're talking about their online experience again and their tabletop experience and it's just going to be an intimate experience, me and you, the listener. Again, this is really awkward, but we're going to roll with it and see how it goes. And I think actually, even in the middle section today in Puzzles to the People, it is very fitting, the thing that we are going to be talking about. So I look forward to this journey with you all today, and we will see you in section number one right after this ad. Hey, I just got back from the mail. Looks like we've got a new game to play. Oh, really? What is it? It's the new Escape the Crate game. Oh, I've been excited about this one. I'm personally a little confused. Okay. The title on the box just says Hood Unit. Okay, can you spell that? W-H-O-D-U-N-I-T. Oh, it's Who Done It, Jared. Yeah, in the new Escape the Crate game, it's the Escape Who Done It. It's like a classic murder mystery, but with a twist ending. I mean, agree to disagree on pronunciation, and by the way, it's twist, not twist. Okay. But what you can do is go over to escape-the-crate.com and use code PUZZLINGCO, puzzling C-O, all one word, and you'll get 25% off your first subscription order or any single retired box that they have. Well, welcome back to Puzzling Company. Here in the first part of our show, we get to talk about the games. And as you've heard us say before, we think that one of the most important parts of playing a game is talking about it afterwards. You do it. We love to do it. And we're going to talk about that right here in this part of the show. I want to start with this here in our Deadbolt Mystery Society studio talking about first, and actually Zach did not get to play this either, was their online game for Lock Holmes. This is a telescape game run through that system, and it's a point-and-click game. I really like this. One of my favorite things just about Trapped in general is that they do not take themselves super seriously. And I don't mean by that that they don't put as much effort into it. It's just that the themes that they choose are usually really fun and light, and a lot of what is covered in either physical escape rooms or a lot of what we cover in the at-home space is very serious. It's very real. It's very intense. It falls into these certain genres and I like that Trap kind of gets away from that. And that's that's what Furlock Holmes is. 
It is self-illustrated. It is plays on the classic Sherlock Holmes-isms. And in the museum mystery, you get to kind of unlock this really fun case. And it's kind of the introduction of the Furlock Holmes character. And then you get to meet them again as we talk about the tabletop and rough bluff. But I want to start talking about what I personally loved about this game. And the first thing that I noticed when I played this game is that there is an element of exploration that you do not see in a lot of other Telescape games. First of all, like I mentioned, it's hand-drawn, it's illustrated. Some Telescape games do that, but by and large, most Telescape games are 3D renderings of physical escape room spaces. And if you know about this, a lot of this was done in regards in 2020 to everything that was happening with the pandemic. And it was a really great pivot for a lot of companies to stitch pictures of their rooms together in a 3D environment and then augment the puzzles, sometimes with avatars, sometimes just playing the room as a point-and-click standalone adventure. And Furlock Holmes uses a lot of that sensibilities, but in their own world. And when I mean exploration, one of the great things they did is they didn't say, hey, here's one room. You may move through a couple different secret rooms in this space, and that's going to be our game. That's not what they did. They said, oh, hey, here's a map. And on that map, you're going to travel to these different locations. So it really made the world feel bigger, like you were going around a town and solving a mystery made more sense in that context than, hey, everything is just going to happen in this one locale. So I love that. It was fun to move between spaces. There's stuff that you needed to do between different spaces. It made the experience more full. And I would like to see that in more point-and-click adventures because I feel like point-and-click adventures sometimes build their world too small because they see that in the physical space, right? You can't often legally build an escape room that spans all across a town where you have access to all of these different buildings and you're you're going, you could, maybe that's a cool idea, but I feel like they pigeonhole themselves because that's what they see in the real world. But Furlock was like, no, we're going to play more of that traditional crime genre. We're going to let you explore more than just the crime scene. We're going to let you see other people, suspects home, interview them. I really love that. It made, like I said, it made it bigger. It felt more traditional video gamey, like where the world building was included because of that. It wasn't just happening in one stagnant location. So kudos to that. I thought that was a really stellar decision, and I think they pulled it off really well inside of Telescape. The second thing that I'll say is I loved their hint system. And this is something that pushed me personally in designs that we want to do in the future. And I hope a lot more people consider this because I think it's a wonderful way to pull off a hint system. And that is through a character. There was a character, I don't want to ruin too much about this, play the game, that is journeying with you as you go location to location to gather evidence and solve puzzles to gather more evidence. And they are your hint system. And it was just very elegantly built in. It was like, oh yeah, anytime you need something, talk to this person. And they were always there, standing right there. Here's a nudge, here's a push, here's something more direct, classic tiered hint system. But it felt so organic. And even the way they phrased giving you the hints, it was conversational. And it was built into like, oh, well, I saw this. You may think about this. It just framed hinting so well. And I would love to see more of that in games. I love a good tiered hidden system. But I think the step above that is when it becomes alive in the game. And this was alive in the museum mystery. 
because they were with you everywhere you went. Hint system should always be accessible. Check. And it just immersed me more to see a person and know, oh, like they are my means of getting the information I need. I'll throw out another game, game genre series that I really love that I think does a similar thing really well. I have loved playing Mario Odyssey, and I'm one of those people that will go back and tinker with that game from time to time just to see how many of, you know, the moons or the stars that I can get. And one of the things I really enjoy in that game is there's a couple of characters in Odyssey. One of them is a parrot that kind of gives you hints and nudges about where and what you should be doing. And then the toad is the other person in that game who is giving you maybe locations and things that you can work on. And collectively, those two characters are pushing you to what you are looking for. And again, it's character-based. It makes sense. You already have built this wonderful, beautiful world. You don't want to go to a start menu and press the hint button and just kind of unoriginally look through something when you already have these very dynamic characters in the game and you're creatively giving the hints through them as well, right? The parrot is giving it to you in kind of parrot talk, toad and his kind of interesting way. And then they even feed Toad into the the other title that he's in at the time and Toad Treasure Tracker. Like they just do a really good job of, again, making an immersive choice to give you a more full experience. Furlock Holmes did that. I thought that was a huge win. I think those are two really big takeaways that you can walk away from this game and say, those aren't hard additions. If I'm going to make a point and click adventure, make it bigger. If you're going to offer hints in some form or fashion, which I absolutely think you should, make a character do it. And I'm not saying that's the only way. I'm just saying this is a really great way that I saw it. I think more people can pick up on. Let's talk a little bit now about room for improvements. And these are kind of difficult for me because there was nothing wrong with the gameplay. I really enjoyed the puzzles. There was also some really imaginative moments using Telescape in this game. But these are just things, you know, when we're comparing point and click to point and click and other things that we have to bring up. One of the really interesting things that the folks at Trap did in this game is they decided to use illustration and then combine it together to make it feel like a 3D tour. So we all know you go on Google Maps, you click, you can drag, you see things from different perspectives. You know, if you moved a mile ahead or 10 steps ahead, if you're in the walking view, it's like that. You're constantly turning, looking around, you seeing this wall, this wall, this wall. And I had an opportunity to actually pick the creator whose name is Gabe. It trapped his mind about this. He said it was quite a learning curve trying to figure out how to take traditional illustration, sketches, drawings, coloring in, and then turn that into a 3D environment because, well, there's nothing that you can do to do that originally. You have to do a pain, do a pain, kind of stitch it together through different third-party programs and then put it together. I love that he did that. The hard part for me is that when you're building this immersive environment, inevitably what the problem became is there's kind of this middle ground in the 3D. Like if you're in a four-walled room, like let's say a square room, the floor that you stand on, there can't really be a whole lot in that place. And it be kind of comes this dead space where I think you could argue like, oh, that's where you're standing. But as you move around, it just becomes kind of this unusable space. That is not, I want to make it very clear, Trap's fault, right? This is something that Telescape is working on. This is, um, you know, a risk of using the program. Could it be done a different way? Programmers, all of that? Sure, yes. But they made that decision, but it, it just becomes very apparent. It makes it feel 
less full. It makes the environment feel less full. And that's the the thing that I want to go into the second room for improvement is I loved the style of drawing. I really liked it, but I wanted more. I wanted more color, more texture. I wanted them to fill out the world a little bit more because the gameplay is there. The ideation is there. I just wanted to feel it and see it more. And I think it's a home run. Like, I hope there's more Furlock Holmes games. I'm here for it. I think it's a fun, light adventure with wonderful puzzling, which Trapped is known for, that I would come back for in the future. But again, this is the origin of the Furlock Holmes character for Trapped. That was their online game that they came out during COVID. And then they decided to continue with that character on into what is their actually first Kickstarter, which is Rough Bluff. And Rough Bluff is, like I said, it's a tabletop game, comes in a box. What we're, most of us who are familiar with what we're talking about on our show, you're working through envelopes, you're trying to solve this mystery, while at the same time engaging in traditional escape room slash puzzle hunt style puzzling. That's what you're getting yourself into when you pick up Rough Bluff. But what was interesting about it is I'm so used to, and so many of us are so used to, playing trap games non through Kickstarter. They have so many other games. We've already covered one of their games last season, Taco Tuesday, which was a split team experience that we really enjoyed. They have a couple of other ones that are wonderful as well that we're hoping to play in the future. But what was so interesting here, and we'll talk about this when we get into questions for creators a little bit, is like, okay, now they're pushing it out to a wider audience. And I just think that that's super interesting there is, and I'll put this in the show notes, still, you can still pre-order this game even though the Kickstarter campaign is over. I recommend that you do so. This game is a lot of fun. It's a puzzle game for puzzle people. They are trapped puzzle rooms. If you love a good puzzle, a fun puzzle, even a challenging puzzle at some, this is a really great game to you. But the ultimate goal of what you're trying to do in Rough Bluff as we kind of take an overview is There is a great storyline, very simple storyline about a ruby bone being stolen, and you're trying to figure out who stole it and why. Classic, who done it, kind of put into the context of a classic dogs playing poker picture. And that picture is kind of the foundation of everything that you are doing in the game. And I really, really like that because it's something that we're all familiar with, but they chose to take that and put a really creative spin on it. But you are journeying through different envelopes. And what I really liked about that envelope system as you get to play this game is every single thing is different. Envelope one is very different from envelope two, very different than envelope three. And then envelope four is different and kind of wraps up your experience where you kind of get to make your guess. But I want to start at the beginning of this game in talking about Room for Improvements. What I think Trap does really, really well and if you're a game creator out there or even someone who's just passionate about this, is onboarding through directions. Some of my other loves of this game will come into more context as we talk about this. But what I know, getting to know some of the creators over at Trapped, is that they're also board game players. And a board game, if you don't play a whole lot of traditional tabletop board game, RPG, whatever experiences you kind of win or lose for me personally and for a lot of other people in reading through the rule book. If I can't understand it, if it doesn't make sense, or if I've read the rule book and then I start my experience and I'm unable to logically or even enjoyingly go through the experience because of what was in that rule book, it leaves a sour taste in my mouth. And historically, 
I feel like this is a way that we've needed to get better in the, in the mystery table talk experiences, prescribing the experience that is about to come down the pipeline because people are already familiar with other things in this genre and they have preconceived notions about how it should play out in their mind, right? It's their expectations. And as a creator, it's our job to set those expectations. And the folks at Trap do a really good job of that. They tell you things like, hey, you may need outside information for part of this experience. You may need to research something. One of the big things I'm going to be talking about is they say, hey, this is a very reusable experience. Everything that they did quelched all of the minor things that so many people get stuck up on and get frustrated on during games, whether that is the signposting, things making sense, connection elements. If you read what they give you at the beginning of the game, at the game, and they do it very concisely too, it helps all of the issues. It really, really does. And because as we're about to talk about, there can be some issues that arise from how they formatted this game. I'm under the personal belief that a lot of those were squelched at the beginning. If they hadn't given me that heads up or the player at that heads up, I would be so furious with this game, but they did. They knew the things they play tested. Well, they knew the things that were coming down the pipeline. They provided accurate upfront information, which provided solid onboarding into the experience. Love it. All about it. You set me up for success as a player and I am thankful for it. The second thing that I really loved about this game, and I think it's the calling card of this, and Zach, just a a side note about this too, is Zach and I got to play half of Rough Bluff together before he came out, and then I finished the game. So some of this is Zach's mentality coming out, things that we had talked about even as we finished up and wrapped up the first half. But to me, the calling card of Trapped in their at-home games is the intersection of puns and puzzles. This is unbridled punniness throughout this entire game. Like, I'm so impressed at how many puns, and it wasn't overdone punning, were wrapped into this. What that allowed them to then do is build out the world. They're building this dog-centric world, and you're getting things that you see traditionally in, you know, the quote-unquote human world. And then they just leaned so heavy into it that it's just so believable, right? If they had just thrown a pun out here and a pun out there, sure, whatever. Like, we all like a good pun. It's fun for a puzzle. But it is there throughout the entire experience. And I'm here for it, you guys. I'm here for it. And you should be too. Combine that then with the puzzling that they do. And it just makes such a great immersive world experience. It feeds each other so well. You find yourself snickering at the answers you get. I told them a little bit about this when we were talking yesterday, conducting the interview, but if you love Colby's Curious Cook-Off from Boxeroo, it almost feels like there it's an akin idea, like the puns, the puzzling, the just the unbridled love and joy that you can see that they in time that they put in their creation. It's fantastic. The puzzles are really good. And they range. And this is something to be aware of if you're getting into this experience. Every different envelope that you kind of get into, in my opinion, had a very different feel. Envelope one felt very traditionally escape roomy. And you kind of tie that in with this online system that they have where you're inputting your answers. That felt very escape roomy. Number two is a really unique and awesome take 
on really it's just one puzzle expanded and it uses a very accessible means of puzzle design. I don't want to ruin too much. I really enjoyed this section. And then three really is the most difficult section and it's where Zach left me for and I missed him very much because this was his style of puzzling, but it's more puzzle hunt, more difficult multi-step. Everything in section three is very multi-step puzzling, but that's where if you're like that really engaged puzzle person, you just get this really awesome sense of how much they were able to pack in. But all of that together makes Rough Luff just this really like great experience that you you shouldn't pass up on. Like this game is not going to be super expensive. As I mentioned, you can still pre-order it. Give this game a try. I think you will love the lightness meets the quality of it. It's it, it's really great. The last thing I have to dote on a lot. I think I've maybe talked about Zach and I maybe talked about this in one or two other games, but in the directions, as I mentioned, this game is unapologetic about being highly reusable. And when you think about that as someone who plays a lot of escape rooms or plays a lot of these style of game, you're thinking, okay, they're telling me I'm going to reuse an item. I'll probably use it maybe twice. And if that is your mentality for the game, you are going to miss out on a lot of this game. The best way I can describe it is it's like they've filled up uh, like a wet rag And you think, you know how you can just keep squeezing it and squeezing it and you just, you cannot get all of the water out of it. Like you have to keep on, keep on revisiting until you've squished every last puzzly element out of there. And it's just really amazing, in my opinion, how well they were able to do that. You use stuff in envelope one that you're using all the way to the very end of the game, especially in section three. Oh my goodness, you just keep, 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 keep on using it. And it just feels appropriate. And it was just really a feat of puzzle execution that you have. I'm sitting back here as a reviewer going like, like, yes, wow, that was that was super, super impressive how you guys pulled all of that off. Now, the thing here is, uh, and I want to talk about this a little bit before we go to Room for Improvement. Inevitably with that, and we talk about this a little in our questions for creators too, is you're going to run into things earlier in the game that you're not ready to use yet. And I know reading reviews, talking with a lot of folks, that can be a pet peeve of theirs to say, I have this information right now. I can't use it, but I'm fairly certain that I'm supposed to use it right now, right? But if you pay close attention, again, to what they said in the directions, and then use what you have in front of you, I personally found that not to be the case in this game. It was very apparent to me that I was going to use this at some point, but maybe not right now. And I say that kind of in between my loves and our room for improvements to say, if that's not your style of game, if you prefer 100% linear, one and done use for puzzle, this game may frustrate you, even though I think they've gone above and beyond and out of their way to make sure that it still flows very well for a game with high reusability. Just throwing that out there, I think it's still definitely give it a whirl because they were cognizant of it. They didn't do this flippantly. It was highly play tested. This is one of the best reusability games that I've seen in terms of not playing it a second or third time, but in terms of using content multiple times throughout the game and still finding a lot of joy in puzzle acumen inside of it. Moving into the room for improvements, I only had one really small issue with the game, and that actually came in section one. The game talks about using outside information, maybe doing a little bit of research. 
The only thing I wish I would have known is maybe a little more signposting to know that, hey, this is going to be the puzzle that I'm going to use it on because you didn't use it very frequently. You didn't have to go outside of the game, which was a little weird for me because if you mention that, I think it's going to happen more than once. And in my recollection, that only happened on one puzzle. If I wish Zach was here because maybe he tackled some of the content where he was doing some internet research or something like that. But it felt like that almost didn't need to be a part of the game. Like it was so self-contained that it didn't need to step out of its world for just a moment only to bring you back in. I can think of one other moment where you're technically stepping out of the game, but you're not doing research. And I really enjoyed that moment as well. But that that was really my only like super nitpicky thing is like it, it didn't seem it fit like the flow of everything else that was going on. It was a good puzzle. The puzzle made 100% sense. It drove kind of the dog world building. But I would have liked to know, okay, give me some kind of nudge that or maybe a harder nudge. Maybe I'm just a thick-headed knucklehead. But that, okay, now is the time that we're stepping out because we're not going to be doing it frequently. If we're doing it all the time, that's on me. I need to be aware of that. But if it's just happening so limited, eh, maybe give me more of a nudge. The other thing I feel like there is maybe not so much some room for improvement, but I think there's some images in this game that are really just going to haunt me and stick with me. There is um, some images of classic dog characters throughout all of modern media, books, TV shows, movies, that they have uh, reinvented and put on some playing cards uh, that you see in the game. Some of these creatures are absolutely terrifying and were floating through my mind. It's like the reinvention, the rework. And it's not that it's poorly drawn. It's just that I'm not comfortable with these characters existing outside of the worlds. There's one in particular from a very prehistoric show, shall we say, that the artist's rendering of it is just haunting and terrifying. And if that creature as it exists on that card showed up in real life today, I would be myself. It's not okay. It's 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 a kind of an abomination. For me, it's if you've ever seen those posts on Instagram, Facebook, wherever you do your social media of people, like they say like, oh, this is what Pokemon would look like in real life. Not interested in that. Pokemon should not exist in real life in that form. If they didn't exist in real life, they would be cell shaded and cute and fun. And I don't, I don't want my real world colliding with my fantasy world. And, and unfortunately that happens in rough bluff a couple of times. And it was horrific. It was utterly terrifying. Like hide your, hide your children from these images. If, especially if they've watched the shows, like it is a dose of reality that, uh, we, we, I could have done without. And now I have to live with those images in my mind of these classic dog or sometimes dog-like characters becoming more real and it's haunting. It's haunting you all. <laughs> I say a lot of that jestingly, but it was something that Zach and I uh, joked a little bit about. And it, I loved the puzzle that it went along with, but it's just something that you can't unsee, you know? Well, that's really going to wrap us up for our first section here. Zach, you are dearly missed. I could have used some of your input, but we'll get you back next episode. Puzzle to the people coming at you next. Solve puzzles, write reviews, win prizes. It's time for Puzzles to the People. Man, I'm just really enjoying Deadbolt Mystery Society games lately. They're just giving me a real sense of nostalgia. 
Yeah, I've been really enjoying them. My favorite part about them is they just feel balanced. You get a little bit of an escape room, a little bit of a murder mystery. It kind of reminds me of those cartoon TV shows I grew up on. Same. There's one I'm specifically thinking of. It kind of involves a dog and some humans in it. Oh, the Jetsons. I love that show. Okay, close but wrong. No, they kind of like solve mysteries together. Oh, Courage the Cowardly Dog. Okay, they don't solve mysteries. Courage literally does random things. Jared, I was specifically trying to tell you it's Scooby-Doo. That doesn't sound right. No, no, no. Blue's Clues. Okay, they are solving puzzles and mysteries, but no, 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 no. I'm talking about Scooby-Doo. Well, at least the good thing for our listeners is if you like adult Scooby-Doo, you can play a Deadbolt Mystery Society game. And when you want to go purchase one, you can put in the promo code PC15 for 15% off subscriptions and single one-time boxes. No, I've got it. It's Air Bud. Jared, that's a real-life dog. That's not even animated, and he doesn't even solve crimes. All right, welcome back to Puzzling Company. We are here in the Deadbolt Mystery Society studio. If you haven't tried a Deadbolt game, it's ironic. It's very similar to Furlock. It is that wonderful combination of where your end goal is trying to solve a mystery and you have wonderful puzzles like an escape room along the way. It's a great fusion. Rough Bluff is, in my opinion, another really great fusion of that thing. Here in Puzzle to the People today, we are going to be talking about something that is very appropriate since my good partner in crime, my good friend Zach, is not here today. And that is solo running games. And I mean that. We're going to talk about that in a lot of different avenues today. But I just kind of wanted to talk it out with you all, with our listeners, about my experiences in playing different puzzle-related media by myself. And we're going to dive into all of the different avenues that we talk about on the show and some that we don't, we're always making references to escape rooms, we'll talk a little bit about there. But I want to start where it feels most natural, and that is puzzles in video games. For the most part, unless we're talking about a split experience or some type of group experience, which I'm thankful is becoming more and more popular, think we were there, think TikTok a tale for two, the group puzzle solving aspect in traditional video games is coming more alive. The internet has obviously helped that more. But growing up when you are playing a Zelda or playing some other type of puzzle platformer, it's just you. It's just you. And you don't have the anticipation or the expectation that your buddy is going to be sitting next to you on the couch giving feedback. Side note, I've tried that. I remember playing a game in college where... We were bored one night. There was a new great game popped out. I was unfortunately the victim that had controller in my hand and you're just getting yelled at the whole time, right? And, but, but that's the impetus of it, right? Is that controller says, this is a one person experience. You are in control. You, the player, not you, the players. And so you should be in charge of it. And I think it makes a lot of sense for solo play in puzzle style games for video games, even some computer games. Think of The Witness. If you've ever played The Witness, we've talked about this on the show before. I cannot fathom playing a game like The Witness with a group of four people. Who gets to decide what the camera looks at? Who gets to decide where we move? It's a nightmare. I've also brought up Toad Treasure Tracker in the past. I tried to play that with my eight-year-old daughter. One person is the person that's interacting with the level the other person is the person that is literally turning the level, creating perspective that you need 
to solve puzzles. That was a reach for me, especially when my daughter and or son had control of either of them because you're just like, no, like turn it to the left. You don't have any concept of this yet. I know you're a second grader, but it's hard. So for me, video games make a lot of sense in solo play unless it is specifically created for a co-op style experience. That makes a lot of sense. As I mentioned, I played Furlock Holmes by myself. This one is a little interesting. Now we're kind of cross-pollinating because one of the great things about Telescape is that Telescape system is meant for multiple people to be playing at the same times. It's one of the geniuses of its creation. So Furlock, I played by myself. I enjoyed it. Would I have minded other people coming along? No, I wish Zach would have been there. I still would probably have preferred two, maybe three people at max. But it started to blur the lines for me in solo play when I got to online point and clicks because, again, the game is probably intended to be played with more than one person, but can be played with more and more persons. So that started to get more interesting. When we move now into let's talk about tabletop, I played the second half of Furlock by myself, and that was honestly the very first time that I tackled content alone. Every other time that I have played an at-home style puzzle or mystery game, I have done it with other people. At least one other person. I think the max that I've done it with is seven or eight people. That's how I would like to play those games. I did not, emphasis, did not enjoy finishing Furlock by myself. Maybe that was because I started it with a person and then I had to finish it without Zach. But there is something about it. Maybe it is the degree of difficulty, the amount of content of reusability in here. But I did not like playing those games by myself. I know there's a lot of our listeners who love it. It is their thing. They get some alone time. They want to dig in and just soak in that mystery, take their time with it. And that's what you should do. We always talk about the timer is one of the greatest things that we are without in the at-home puzzle and mystery world. But for me, I think I just get a little overwhelmed by myself and I'm such a verbal processor that I need somebody to bounce off my terrible ideas so that it bounces back a better idea. And when I had nobody here to talk to yesterday, it was not great. I was making connections. I was doing things just kind of trying to be as slow and as methodical as I could be. But Zach's a great balance for me. And he does things well that I don't do well and vice versa. And I think having done it all together and then trying it by myself, there was just a level of, mm, I don't want to say lack of urgency, but the pace at which I'm used to working at, I couldn't achieve by myself. I used a lot of hints. Not going to lie about that. I loved using the hints. Didn't feel bad about it in the least bit. Helped me get through the experience. And thankfully, there was a wonderful tiered hint system in Rough Bluff. But it just made me wonder, because escape rooms as well, I went on a tear playing escape rooms solo by myself. And I love that. And I'm like, well, why? Like, what is the difference here? Like, what are the semantics and the details that we're talking about that make things more enjoyable for the single player. I think a lot of it, a majority of it, I would say, is your personal preference, how you tackle games, how you process things. I think that is going to determine more than anything whether you like a game or not, because a lot of the escape rooms that I was solo running, they weren't small games. They were intended for six, seven, eight people. But what I found is I was talking to somebody the whole time. 
I would tell the game master on my way in, hey, I'm going to verbal process everything that I've found, seen, and thinking through just so that you have a context when I ask for a hint on the best way to send me. And it felt like the whole time I had, you know, a fairy godmother that I was talking to that was going to take care of me, that was ready and understood my mindset. Additionally, I think the escape rooms are easier because the puzzles are intended to take a shorter period of time. And so I felt more confident in in my ability to move through those things, regardless of the game that I was playing. So I think that kind of, to me, like wraps up why I like doing the escape rooms. There's also some tangibility there. The other thing is in escape rooms is I, I don't like playing with more than four people because I hate missing out. You cannot go back in an escape room for free the next day and say, hey, can you show me everything? Not all escape rooms show you everything. So I recently played the Timeliner at the escape game, new game that we have here in the Nashville area. And I went and I think we had, we had seven people in our group. And I think that's max size. I think maybe eight's the max size. I haven't played an escape room with that many people. All people I knew though, family, my best friend, like a, a group of really, you know, there's not a public, like who's, who's this rando in my room? And we went through it. It's a very nice game. But I found myself saying like, even though I love all these people, I kind of like playing with less people because maybe selfishly, I like to touch and do more. And when you're at an escape game and you don't touch and do something, there's there's really no undoing it. Whereas, and at a home, you're not usually doing something tech-based or lock-based. Somebody can sit and explain to you and you can kind of enjoy the aha together based on you're able to see that person and do and, and work with that person. So I think that kind of explains in my mind why escape rooms are okay in my mind for solo play. It's also a challenge that I feel competent to handle, like getting out of an escape room that's meant, I say meant in quotation marks, for seven or eight people. That's fun. You're coming down to the last minutes more often than not as a solo player. You're getting to touch all of the content and it's it's just cool. I enjoy it. I'm going to keep doing it. But then bringing it back to tabletop, I wouldn't want to do more of this by myself. As I've said in past episodes, the most important resource to me just in life, but especially in gaming, is what is what is my time commitment going to be here? I know in escape rooms, it's going to be what they say it's going to be, regardless of how far I've got through the game. It's a business. There's a model there. They've got to get the next group in. At home, they don't care. Not in a bad way, but I bought the game. I've already paid for the game. They want me to take my time and enjoy it. But that time goes up drastically for the single player. If I had not used hints and tried to figure out the third packet in Rough Bluff by myself, that'd have been a day. There's some really good deep puzzles there. And thankfully, like as I mentioned, there is a good hint system, but it increases my time greatly. And my time is incredibly valuable to me. And having Zach here, having other people that come play, they decrease the time, but not my enjoyment. And that's where the trade-off is there for me is they eliminate frustrations because they're probably seeing something that I'm seeing. And I'm just kind of bewildered because all of these things are just so adjacent to each other. Yet, even though maybe it's part creator intention, player expectation, I find myself enjoying the group aspect more in some and not in others. And I would challenge you, if you're listening to this, to ask yourself that question, maybe even sparse it out more. I wondered if I had played like a truly escape style game, like an exit game, would I have enjoyed that more? Or was it the crime element that made this more difficult? 
or was it just because I was in the puzzle hunty part of the thing and that's difficult and doing a puzzle hunt by yourself is incredibly difficult, right? Some of these MIT puzzle hunt teams have 70, 80, almost 100 people to tackle the degree of difficulty. So maybe it was a difficulty thing. But sitting here by myself and kind of contemplating why I have these preferences, I just think it's fascinating. I will most of the time prefer a group. I'm a social animal. As I mentioned, we're heading off to recon. I can't wait to meet new people, play games with them, build relationships. It is the people element more often than this and not that is exciting to me, doing something together. That is not the case for everybody, for sure. Some people, you want to pour a glass of wine. Your cat crew's got to roll up with you and inspect the elements. Like That is your vibe. There's nothing wrong with that. But I do think it is good to challenge your biases, challenge the different mechanics of why you play a game and tinker with them and learn about yourself a little bit. I learned something about myself finishing this game by myself and that it's, oh, I'm really good at this. I'm very not good at this. And also I'm super thankful for the gentleman that sits opposite and puts up with all of my verbal processing as we play this game because Zach is not a verbal processor And I know I drive them crazy sometimes with theories and connections and all of those things. But all of that is to say, I think I'm I'm never going to do a solo episode again unless it absolutely demands it or try to finish an at-home game by myself because that's not my style. I got my boy, Zach. We're a puzzling company. We roll in puzzle world together. And just as kind of a secret little side note, puzzling company may be growing in the next couple of months. We're experimenting with some things and... You might hear some different voices on here. Zach and I are for sure not going anyway, but um, we might be experiencing a little growth spurt, but more about that in the future. That's really going to wrap us up for our middle section. We have questions for creators coming at you next, and we're super happy to have Amy and Mark back from Trap Puzzles Rooms. We'll be right back after this break. There are some awesome people who make the puzzles we love to solve. This is Questions for Creators. Hey everyone, Jared here. And if you've listened to the podcast for any amount of time, you know that Zach and I love to test our skills as private investigators. We've done this for local police departments, federal agencies, and we always seem to catch our bad guy. But one of our favorite companies to do that with is Unsolved Case Files. They have a really great product. Their game works through envelopes. Every time you solve part of the case, you open another envelope and you get to dig into even juicier and deeper details until you finally figure out what's going on. They have a great online input system for their answers. And of course, as we always talk about, a great hint system to complement it when you get stuck and you're looking for that extra nudge. Personally, we love these games because they tell great stories. Those stories have great twists and the connections that you are making to solve the case lead to those super satisfying aha moments. Me personally, I like these games because they're what I call one sitting games, which means they take about an hour to two hours and you don't have to worry about a cliffhanger ruining it if you want to get all the way through it. You're getting an entire story, an entire game every time you play an unsolved case file games. Currently, there are eight of these games out there. You can find these games at unsolvedcasefiles.com. And just for being one of our listeners, you can get 15% off by using the code PUZZLE15, all one word, PUZZLE15 at unsolvedcasefiles.com. Welcome back to Puzzling Company here in the Deadbolt Mystery Society studio. We are now in the section of our show called Questions for Creators. 
and the two people that we have on today, just so you can kind of see a little bit behind the scenes, we get on and we love meeting with the creators. It's as you've heard me talk about all episode, just doing things with other people is incredibly important to me. I love getting to talk and know to the creators, but the hardest part about Amy and Mark is our Zoom sessions. We record for about 45 minutes and then there's an extra two to three hours of talking. <laughs> afterwards about board games, escape rooms, venting, talking about life, our our friends or family, things that we want to do, ideas, bouncing ideas off of each other. I really enjoy these people. I'm looking forward to getting a trip together to go up to Minnesota to play their games, to have a game night with them. They're just really wonderful people. And I just enjoy connecting with them a lot, as well as they're just fantastic creators. We always enjoy their content and they're part of a really cool team up there in the trap puzzle room team. We've heard some other, uh, some other names are not there like Gabe, shout out to Gabe too. Gabe, um, almost made a, uh, a cameo of sorts on this episode, but, uh, didn't have an answer to a crucial question. So Gabe will get you on in a future episode. But uh, first question I have for you guys is like, what's up? Like we, you guys were on six, eight months ago when we were talking through taco Tuesday, but what's new with you personally? And are there any excited things happening in the trapped world? Do you want to go, Mark? You want to talk about Rough Bluff? Oh, we can. Yeah, totally. We should talk about Rough Bluff. So we launched a Kickstarter a month and a half ago, two months ago now uh, for Rough Bluff. We're still accepting some pre-orders and things. If you want to jump on that late of uh, our next kind of tabletop experience called Rough Bluff, uh, a Furlock Holmes mystery, which uh, showcases a number of dogs that are playing a hand of poker. And uh, alas, someone has bet their ruby bone in uh, into the pot. The dogs get distracted, and then the ruby bone is missing and gone. Uh, and so you are uh, helping out Furlock Holmes, the legendary sleuth, track down what happened to that ruby bone, figuring out kind of the backgrounds and motives of all of these different dogs. It's uh, from the things we do. It's cute and adorable and full of puns and doesn't take itself too seriously, uh, but it's got a lot of great puzzles in it. I'm really excited about it. Trapped has a very big, exciting in-person thing in the works uh, that is taking up a lot of our time and energy right now. And we'll have more formal specific announcement things soon, but very big, very exciting. So one thing I want to know about is where does Furlock Home comes from? It's a great pun. I know you had the museum mystery first and then now obviously making an appearance in Rough Bluff, but did y'all dream this character up internally, uh, external inspiration? How, How did this character come to life? So it was a Gabe thing. Gabe, our artistic director, did basically all of the online for a lot game single-handedly. He did all the art. He came up with almost all the puzzles. Mark, I think you and Sir Jay did a couple. Well, of I think the we puzzles. both designed a couple to help flush yeah, it out. But yeah, but it was mostly Gabe, all out of his brain. So I can't answer this for sure. But if I had to guess, it was because Gabe's partner Aaron, who is the manager of our St. Paul location is a huge Sherlock Holmes fan. Big, big, red, basically everything Sherlock Holmes ever. So that's just where I'm guessing. And also Gabe just loves cute animals and animal puns and stuff. So I'm assuming it happened a little bit organically. Part of it came out of a, we had converted one of our physical locations into an avatar room uh, late in the pandemic. We got on that bandwagon late, but through that we used Telescape to kind of help do the interactions and stuff that players could look at and do the 3D map and things like that. And through that, kind of realized we could pretty easily convert that into doing a point-and-click adventure. And Gabe was the one that did a lot of the 
the front end work on getting Telescape working for the Avatar one. And so that kind of naturally spun him off into doing that work for, you know, kind of a po- the point and click adventure version of Furlock. And like most game things, he was like, oh, I like drawing. I've never drawn in like a 3D environment before. Mm-hmm. That sounds fun. And then had to like create this entire thing just because he sort of felt like trying 3D art. So that was a very gay thing. And then for Rough Bluff, when we first were sort of spitballing ideas, I think Mark suggested like the, like around a poker table and kind of recreating a poker thing. And it was like, but then all of us were like, oh, we don't really like Western theme. Like none of us really latched onto that idea. Like, cause at first it was like in a wild West saloon and we're all like, meh. And then one of us was like, well, what about like the dogs playing poker thing? That's pretty neat. And then we looked at, and the most famous like dogs playing poker, what is it called? Like a risky bluff or something like that. Yeah. Something like that. And we're like, what about rough bluff, but rough like rough. And then we kind of, it all spiraled. Cause once one of us gets excited about something, we all kind of, it's like a feeding frenzy and we all get really excited and jazzed. And then it wasn't until later that we we're like, well, what if we set this in the same like universe as the furlock thing? And so we actually sort of had the rough bluff and dogs playing poker thing before we decided to make it a furlock Holmes thing. And then uh, just, so you don't like, get too many emails. It is a bold bluff. That is the name of the a artwork. Bold bluff. That's it. Yeah. I'm glad you looked it up because yeah, I know I'm sure you'd have been like, I know. <laughs> so we can't talk about you guys without talking about the wonderful world of puns that you employ. How does this happen? Like the degree of punnage that's going on in the newspaper alone is a feat, like a a genius work of punnage. Is this something that is just natural to you guys? Or are you saying like, no, like we're just going to sit around and do it. Like, is is this part of your culture? Just tell me, because we see this in all of the games that you do. So how we did it in Rough Bluff that I, at least I feel like we were able to do is it's part of the world is we're just, we're revealing this world that we're, that dogs live in and they exist in and they have these human, the things that we're used to, but they're, they're versions of it. And so those puns are just kind of built from that. We've kind of created this world around, well, what would a dog call this thing? Some silly dog-related name of a thing. I like that it feels like we're making this world, but it's still something that you can relate to and it's still kind of funny and cute because, I mean, ultimately we want we want these experiences to be fun. That's 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 the foundation of what we do. We're not trying to like fool you. We're not trying to like make you feel like you're hunting a killer or something like that. It's not at our vibe. We're not going to get there. We're going to hopefully give you a fun time. There are a couple of things that we cut puns out of. There were too many of them. And we had to pull back just a little bit because they no longer made sense. <laughs> we got a little too far. But yeah, I think that's that's the core of, of where we come from. When there's too many puns is when there's like a three word thing and we've replaced every word with a pun version. And now you can't really tell what the original thing was supposed to be. That's when we're like, okay, we should dial it back. In the game, there are are dollar bills. There's 11 of them. And originally on the bottom, they said there were 700 collar barks. (laughs) And it was too much. We changed every word. Now they're just $700 bills because Mm -hmm. I got to the newspaper section and had to write about them. And trying to write that someone had taken seven hundred collar barks made no sense in the context mm-hmm. of the newspaper. So that's that's when we did revert back. There were there are a few that were like, this is a step too far. I think if somebody at Trapped was like, I designed some puzzles, you should test them for me. And we were like, okay. And there were no puns and it was very serious, we'd be like, Oh, oh, okay. You know, like it's just sort of the culture that we have at Trap that everybody is just, we can't help it. We can't help, but make things fun. You know, like we, we have a really hard time 
almost taking ourselves seriously that it happens really naturally. It, it's just sort of a natural thing. And then of course we're, we play test and look over each other's work and are like, you know, you can make this say barks instead of bucks. And it's like, Oh, you got one. And you know, it just, it's, yeah, it's very much just sort of the the culture of the kind of design workspace that we exist in. I always have a couple, like uh, Spirit Train is one of the audio rooms that I think veers away from that, like try to deal with something that was a little more serious and a little more like in a world and and still, I mean, there's still that element of fun and whimsy about it. Um, I've got a back burner project that also kind of goes more in that serious realm, but it's, that for us is more of the intentionality of like, we're going to intentionally make a serious thing and we're going to like really make sure that people know that this is the way we're going with it. Yeah. Where I think the jokes and the puns are, that's, that's who we are. That's, we like fun. We want things to be fun. So I don't think you can talk about this game without mentioning your expert use of reusability of puzzle and material to fuel different puzzles. Tell us about that. How did you make that decision? How did you execute that? This doesn't seem very easy and I'm super curious how you pulled it off. For me, so if if somebody has played all of the trap takeout games and then played Rough Bluff, um, we hope that you'll be surprised at the variety of the components. The, the first series of trap takeout games really relied on what can we produce ourselves. We have, we have papers, we have cutters. I, you know, literally cut and assemble every single, every component in every game. So with our first Kickstarter, we thought, okay, if we, if we're able to kickstart something, so we have that sort of first print run funded, what can we do with more components? Mm -hmm. And as we started looking at components and component prices, it's like, God, how do we justify this $1 component? If we just use it for one puzzle and then it's done, like that just feels like a waste of stuff that we have now produced. You know, we don't want to... So it was mostly about capitalizing on the things that our players are paying for, right? If you're going to pay for a deck of cards... You want to really feel like you got your use out of them. These are really justified because I've played games before, puzzle games that have really cool components, but you sort of do it and you're like, oh, that was it. They like modeled this, they designed this, they did all this for like this one moment and that's it. You know, so that's mostly where the reusability came out of it is like, if people are going to be paying for this stuff. We want to really like justify its existence in the box. So, so are you saying then that there's a little bit of like, it's for the enjoyment of reuse or that that's why you're kind of focusing into what you're doing. I love when the times where I played things, and this is true in escape rooms too. When you reuse something that you weren't expecting to reuse, when you do something and you're like, that was cool. And then you set it aside and then you're doing other things and you're like, Oh my gosh, this thing had this on it this whole time. And I didn't even really notice that that was, that was a hard thing in designing designing a game that has lots of those reusabilities because you don't want to you know with all the kind of inherent signposting you don't want those things that they have access to earlier to be red herrings you don't want yes. them to get hung up on the stuff that they can't do anything with yes but to be able to bury stuff in there that then you refer to later and they're like i've literally been holding this for three hours and now all of a sudden i get to use it again it's just so satisfying not everybody thinks so. We definitely, um, there are people who like to do a puzzle and then yeet it across the room and <laughs> never think of it again. And they might struggle a little bit with rough bluff in that regard, but I, Wait. I find it really rewarding to reuse things. 
that was one thing we worked a lot in playtesting as we had, especially the first act, we put in some really clear signposting to help guide you on what you need to look for. All the other stuff that looks important uh, doesn't distract you. It's, you know, you know that that's hopefully something for later. And we tell you up front, you're going to use this again. It's something for later. Keep it in mind, but don't worry about it. That we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to communicate that, what that wording was, how much we can kind of give, what things we need to say for later. That was a big thing where we, we were a big challenge for us uh, through the project. I'm super curious about why you all made the move to Kickstarter for Rough Bluff. You have three or four other at-home titles, whether they're tabletop, digital. You're actually one of the escape rooms that I see produces the, mo- one of the, produces the most of this. But now you say, no, we're going to put it on Kickstarter. What was the, the reason, the rationality behind making that move? Yeah, that was a, an early consideration. Like one of the first things we were was we, we wanted to try and make something on Kickstarter. What does that look like for us? What does that mean for us? How does that change our process? We wanted to see if that world was something that made sense for Trapped. And so with that, we knew we wanted to increase our componentry. We wanted to, to get things that we're not making ourselves. I think we're getting just about everything or everything manufactured for this. It's still in the US, but they're all coming piecemeal. We're doing the assembly still part still, but we wanted to increase that production level. And so Kickstarter for us, let us do a cent. I mean, we use it sort of like a pre-order system. We need to know how many people wanted this, how many to produce, because producing them in smaller quantities, which we're doing with the rest of our trap takeout stuff was a lot more difficult. And so, yeah, that was, that was the main reason that we wanted to go down that route and just see if, you know, could we reach a wider audience? Are there people out there that don't know we exist and would might find us through Kickstarter and go, oh, here's some cool stuff. Uh, oh, they've got all this other backlog of stuff. Let's play all these other games too. We've got, we've got a lot of things that I think are a lot of fun. And I want people to play them. So as I mentioned, when we get together with y'all the second time, we make it a little more fun, a little more personal. This game is dog-themed, obviously. And I have to believe, and there's a Parks and Rec episode about this, that you all sat around and talked about what each other's dog personality would be. So my question is, did you have that conversation? And if you haven't, I'm going to put you on the spot to say what dog you are or what the the other person's dog is from an outside perspective. So fun fact, we didn't assign them to each other, partly because of a fundamental belief that how one sees themselves is very important versus how other people see them. But over the course of the Kickstarter, Gabe drew us all as dogs. And also there was a question was that was what breed of dog would you be? So all of us already answered those questions and there is art of us as those dogs. So yeah, I said miniature American Shepherd because that's what kind of dog I have. I have three of them. I can't imagine anything else. So that was the easy answer for me. I don't remember what I answered at all. <laughs> I don't know. I'm either. frantically looking through our many channels of Discord to see if I can find it. I don't remember what it was. I thought it was a bigger dog. Maybe. Like a, I know it wasn't a like schnauzer. A I do love schnauzers. They're a dog you that love I schnauzers, but I don't see you as a schnauzer. Exactly. I didn't pick yeah. schnauzer because I don't I don't see myself as a schnauzer. It might I don't remember. It might have been like a beagle or something like that. I also like beagles a lot. Okay. Okay. Now I'm going to, I'm going to take it a step further. You guys know Zach and I, uh, what would you say that Zach and I, if you had to give us, we're giving, we're giving you permission outside perspective to tell us what type of dog we are in the interactions that we've had. You give me a little bit of like Belgian Turverin vibes. They're very cool. They're very cool. There's a Belgian Turverin in my agility class with waffles. His name is Wally. Um, but I just really like Turves. They're, um, 
they're really energetic and nice, but they also just like look really cool and they like look like they take themselves seriously, but they don't. So that's the sort of vibe I get from you. I think that Zach is a basset hound because they're lazy and he's not here right now. So we can talk. (laughs) (laughs) Amy is the dog expert hands down. So I'm definitely going to defer to her, her expertise on this. That was one of my, that was my official title in the Kickstarter was dog expert. (laughs) Uh, I, I guess wrapping up, is there anything y'all want to close out with? So Trapped is an itty bitty little team. There's only a handful of us and we all kind of do everything. And Takeout for the most part has been my baby during the pandemic. You know, I produce and pack everything and um, have been a part of designing everything. Um, but before the pandemic, I was the project manager for Trapped which for traps means I head up the build team. So our little, our little crew of carpenters and that. So with going into this very big, exciting new thing, I'm sort of going back to my old job almost. So for the most part, it's unlikely that we'll be coming out with more at home stuff, at least for the near future. We would love to do more long-term. And now I'm, now that I've sort of gotten bitten by it, I think part of my brain will always be designing something like a takeout in the back of my head, but we have a whole bunch of in-person stuff to design and build uh, first. So I think we'll, we're all going to get pretty thoroughly sucked into that. We just don't have a big enough team to be like, okay, you work on this, you work on this. And so, yeah. So yeah, nothing our, in the pipeline for at home. Our, our new space, I, I, being the person who's dealing with the, the, like the logistics and planning and all that for the new space, we're looking at that being a two to two and a half year build out. That's kind of where our focus for almost all of our team will be for the next number number of months. Man, I just, I love talking with you guys. It's so much fun. Can't wait to come visit you all. Looking forward to whatever you all have going on in the future. It's super exciting. And it sounds like you guys are just really enjoying doing what you're doing. So keep up the good work and we'll touch base soon. Uh, if you are interested, again, in trying Rough Bluff, We have put the link, I'm not going to say it out loud, it's just easier to click on it for the pre-order. You can still, at the point in time of the release of this episode, get a pre-order of Rough Bluff, have it delivered to you early on, and enjoy just a really fun puzzle experience. Fun puzzle punny experience, that is what this is. Furlock Holmes Museum Mystery is available anytime. Just go to trappuzzlerooms.com navigate to their remote experiences and you'll find as i said a lot more than just furlock homes they have a great library of both in-person escape rooms and remote material be sure to check them out find them social media at trap puzzle rooms shoot them a review it's very clear to zach and i that these people care about their craft are trying to get better and they love what they do and i'm down with that all day every day for us the way that you can help us like our Facebook page, hit us up on Instagram, shoot us a message. I'm actually interested to hear if somebody wants to email us their personal opinions on solo versus group play, what their internal reasonings and mechanics are for choosing one over the other. I'm super fascinated if you would send us that. You can send that to contact at puzzlingcompany.com. And I think it'd be a fun thing to revisit in the future. So if you have some thoughts on that, even if you just have something quick and easy, you can drop it to us on Facebook or at Instagram. Just send us a quick message and say, hey, this is why I play with groups. This is why I play solo experiences. Or maybe you're a mixed bag like me and the medium determines how you like to enjoy it. Who knows? But uh, we're super thankful for all of your support. If you're interested in in playing games with us, be sure to look at our uh, Patreon 
join up with that. We're going to be changing and fixing some things up with that as we head into a new year at the end. But we've got some exciting things coming up here in the future. We've got a couple more triple threat games coming up and then an exciting game that's uh, just released on Kickstarter that we will actually be releasing in the next couple of weeks. There's a great new game called On Circus Grounds that uh, we are going to talk about next week. And then we will finish out our triple threat little mini season that we're doing where we talk about companies that have physical escape rooms, digital material, as well as tabletop. Thank you so much for listening to us again, always here in the Deadbolt Mystery Society's studio, doing what we love to do. We will have Zach back next week, ready to go with a little bit of a wrap up of what happened at Recon. We're not going to do a whole episode on it, but I'm sure we'll have some thoughts walking away from that that we'll be excited to share with everyone. For Jared and for at home sick Zach, this has been Puzzling Company. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Find us on social media at Puzzling Company and online at puzzlingcompany.com. Check back weekly for new episodes. Until next time, keep puzzling. Shift Cassette Studios. This has been Rogue Media Network Podcast.